Hello everyone, I'm your host Isha Bahinipabi and welcome to the third episode of Inclusivity, where we grab a caffeinated beverage, sit back and talk with professors across the academic spectrum about what inclusivity means to them, both personally and in their respective fields. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Elizabeth Jones. How are you doing, Dr. Jones? Good, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad to have you with us today. With over 30 years of experience in her field, Dr. Elizabeth Jones is a professor of psychology with expertise in its organizational and social aspects, as well as in research methods. As head of the psychology department here at Monash Malaysia, Dr. Jones has developed specialized programs at both the undergraduate and postgraduate levels and has supervised over 20 doctoral candidates in their own research. She's also been published over a dozen times and has received numerous grants from both the public and private sectors in Australia to further her research, often consulting in establishing industry-level training modules as well. Dr. Jones's current research is focused on the intersection of culture and patient care and the developing of effective interprofessional communication, learning, and practice. So I hope that intro did you justice. Um, Hope you've got your, you know, sort of caffeinated beverage. I just, I just have water today because I'm a bit hyped up. Um, so yeah, if you, if you're ready, we, we can, we can start with the first question. So our first question today is, what does inclusivity mean to you? I know, and that's such a huge. You're starting with like the huge question um, straight away because I think I talked for two hours just thinking about that as a conversation because inclusivity. It can never just be what I think it is, because if it's going to be really inclusivity, it has to be something that's a a discussion always between me and myself and others, doesn't it? Because inclusivity is setting up at the level of an individual interaction in a group, in a society, in an organisation, a space where everyone feels respected, understood, heard. There is so much just to that one term to me at all those levels, because as I said, you know, even the interaction we have now, how is that inclusive? Because we come from our own different cultural backgrounds. We come with what is potentially a power difference because of my status versus your status. So it starts at that level. But because of my whole background also in organisational psychology, it is thinking about it at the level of the organisation and what it does. But an organisation exists within the wider society. And so for for me, it's about all of that. And I think I'm most acutely aware of that because of my own background coming out of Australia where at times the focus of inclusivity can be people's cultural, racial, ethnic background. In Australia, there is a huge thing going on at the moment around women. And at at every level of society, that's been a particular theme this year. So, but I think one of the challenges we have is we can be focused on one lens or one aspect of it. And as soon as we're doing that, it's so easy that others get forgotten. And so if you'd spoken to me two years ago, I might have been talking about Indigenous peoples um, or our Muslim population. And I think that's the challenge with inclusivity is 
we're always struggling to keep all of the people who need to feel included um, in the frame. Disability was one at another moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So as in all fields, an intersectional approach is vital, right? Um, because I, I'm trying to bring my own background as a, as a gender studies student as well. And I can see that kind of analysis required in multiple. But I think, I mean, definitely, I think the first step is that, you know, it's acknowledged and then steps are taken to hopefully, you know, I feel like even while being inclusive, it ends up being an inherently exclusionary process because you do end up leaving people out. So it's a journey and like, it, it's it's fantastic that, you know, the, your, your, your field is like hopefully working towards that. And yeah, so this brings us very nicely to, um, our primary, um, our primary topic, which would be, uh, you know, inclusivity within your field of, of psychology. And, um, you know, so where, where do you, where do you see inclusivity in your field? Where do you see a lack of it? So if you could, you know, talk about that. I know, and I think it's important in psychology, there's differentiating um, education in psychology, research in psychology, which obviously informs that education and practice of psychology, which is obviously informed by the research and the education. So there's commonalities in the problems to me across that, but there are also particular challenges in each of those areas. But I might just start with research as an example. And so I'm acutely aware in psychology that if you were to do, you know, I've been teaching students this week about doing systematic literature reviews. And I said, when we do that, we should be looking at who's doing the research, where is the research is being done, how is the research being done, what is the research being done, you know? And if we look in psychology, we would find that the United States does disproportionately the research that's been published in psychology followed by Europe, the UK, and then potentially some other weird, I deliberately use that term of Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic countries. And there is still, it's changing, but there is still a huge underrepresentation of other countries and therefore other perspectives. So the knowledge that we are building on in our research is disproportionately has those voices at the moment. And I think that matters because it guides what we research, who we research, and how we research. And so I think it's very exciting for me that probably particularly the last 10 years in psychology, a bit longer, but I can really see the momentum now, has been that growing awareness that this is a problem that needs to, something needs to be done about because it's not inclusive. And there is so much happening around the world now of associations that are from underrepresented regions and countries that there is talk. And I'll give an example of something that I'm excited about here at Monash, Malaysia in December we are running a small group meeting for 50 people that is Indigenous psychology in Southeast Asia. And it's about saying, we know this is an important endeavor that's going on and we want to promote this, bring together people to build uh, research collaborations and network 
that says it is time in Southeast Asia that our psychology needs to have an Indigenous perspective in who, what, how we are doing psychology. That was a long answer, but um, I think it says what I see is really key at the moment. No, Dr. Jones, I, that was actually a really, really good answer that was very convenient for me because that leads directly to my first question, um, because you mentioned that you wanted to talk about or you saw the topic of decolonizing psychological research specifically as like, you know, perfect for us to discuss here today. So I guess, I mean, you, you, you know, you entered it perfectly, um, the importance of hiring non-Western, non-white, non-male, you know, like non-heteronormative perspectives and uh, research done on these individuals. Because again, the history of psychology is very, is a bit, you know. Um, so, okay, so I guess we would start with, so de when it comes to decolonizing psychological research, and you talked a bit about that earlier, but what is the, the significance or importance of, of doing this? I think it starts with, we can't assume that what we know and how we know in a Western culture represent it, that's not inclusive because we haven't looked at, does this apply? Is this appropriate in non-Western countries? And as I said, that's both how we go about knowing things, but also what we know, you know, are people the same in the way? So psychology is about how we think, feel and behave. Are ways of thinking, feeling and behaving the same across cultures? And we know that, that it's not. There are some very fundamental differences. There's some commonalities, but there's some fundamental differences. And if our research isn't occurring across all those different countries and cultures, then we have a limited understanding of how people think, behave and feel. But it's also how we go about finding out how people think, behave and feel. It's our research methods that I am passionately certain we have not been critical enough about in psychology more generally, even in Western cultures, um, a quantitative research methods, a positivist approach has been the predominant way of researching in psychology. And there's been a growing acceptance that we need to look at qualitative approaches as giving us a lot of insights, even in Western countries. And then there becomes the conversation, what are the ways of knowing and finding out things in non-Western countries? Let's learn about them and value them. And hence why, you know, made that reference to indigenous psychologies and how they do that. And so I think that's really central to um, what we need to be doing in research and psychology at present. And there's even the fundamental, you know, knowing myself as a researcher. So one of the things I now teach when I teach people research methods is it's not just teaching you techniques and approaches. You need to know yourself and be a reflective researcher the same way you'd be a reflective practitioner of psychology. So you need to know yourself and see your own biases and own those. Yeah, back to you. No, Dr. Jones. Um, again, my next question is going to be, how can this be implemented? And then would this involve, you know, would part of that involve changing the curriculum of the psychology programs? But 
you, you, you did talk a bit about that teaching, um, you know, teaching alternative or, you know, expanding to include different methods of qualitative um, research and stuff. And I think I have taken a course on research methods, but it was in the social sciences. So it was a bit different, but I do understand the value of qualitative methods, especially when it comes to personal narratives as well, especially those who have been underrepresented in, in you know, in history. I'm sorry if there's like noise in the background. Today's a holy day for, for Hindus. So my mom's doing the whole puja thing. So if you hear a bell, that, that's for outside. Uh, when it comes to decolonizing psychological research, and you, you talked again a bit about this, you know, making sure um, underrepresented voices are heard. Can you expand more on the practical effects of this, um, practical consequences of decolonizing this? You know, how will it benefit um, the, the field? How will it, you know, not benefit the field? Research informs education in psychology and it informs the practice of psychology, be it as a psychologist or in where you're using your psychological knowledge in your, your employment. And I think that's, that's where this is really important because there's that flow on effect. This isn't just a sort of conceptual exercise of, oh, isn't it interesting to see what people in non-Western countries think about this? It is because that should then be informing the education process and the, the practice. And that's where you see the direct benefits to societies when we do that. Um, and I do think about the everyday practice of psychology. How do we be an effective psychologist in our cultural context? How are we culturally sensitive? How do we give work with people from diverse backgrounds if we haven't got research informing our education to inform our practice. So I think that's the very practical part to me. I think another challenge in this space that's going on for us, and I think about this as a head of department because one of my jobs is hiring staff, is to what extent can research that is non-weird in a sense be done by people, so, you know, to own my background, I was born in New Zealand. I'm an Anglo-Australian New Zealander would be how I would describe myself ethnically. And that means I inevitably bring that perspective to everything I do and I can try to be aware of that, but that is who I am. What happens if I'm now living in Malaysia as I am and doing my research here and trying to do research that's culturally sensitive and inclusive, but I am still to some extent an outsider. And I always think there's value to being an outsider because you see things that an insider doesn't, but you also don't see things that an insider does. So for me, another important part practically of this is we have to ensure that we have researchers who are both insiders and outsiders, because that again will bring a really valuable perspective there. I kind of see this link that you're making where it's not just like a flow. It's also very cyclical in terms of, you know, you're talking about having research both on the inside and outside and having research on the inside um, implies that these researchers would be of non, you know, traditional backgrounds, you know, non-traditionally Western backgrounds, which would then like as a result of having like non, you know, normative research done. So it's, it's, it's fantastic that, you know, you can clearly see like the, the cyclical nature of your, of your work. I like very like neat parallels and like neat, neat patterns. So it's good to see that. So I wanted to talk about another aspect of psychology, which has also gone through its own decolonization. And this would be queerness. 
in psychology. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't think you can talk about inclusivity without talking about, you know, non, non-white individuals and then non-heteronormative um, individuals. So the history between psychology and non-heteronormative individuals, non-white, non-cis, non-straight, non-male, and then non-European, you know, non-Western, has been fraught with discrimination. For example, homosexuality was diagnosed. And I'm again, I'm this is research based in the US because it's not available really, you know, worldwide. Homosexuality in the US was diagnosed as a legitimate mental illness until the 1970s. So can you know, can you talk a bit about about your your perspective on you know I think we need to come up with a different term, not decolonizing, but you know what I mean? Like yes, clearing. Because, yeah. Yes. Clearing yes. Things. Yeah. And it I think even the battles we're having to work out what's the term to use that becomes inclusive because as you said, decolonizing is one part of it, but that ex- doesn't take account of others who are being excluded and so finding inclusivity in a sense being a broader term um, cultural sensitivity where i use culture just not to being ethnicity and race um, that's that's something we need to continue to have conversations even the terms we're going to use but going back to your your one for example about queerness i'm old enough to have been going to university first at the point where that first changes were going on in the 1980s, where we were changing from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and the one I was still using as I started my university studies, still labeled homosexuality as a mental health condition, which inevitably then meant a whole host of other things. I also did it in a country where the religious context was, and still to some extent continues to be, that homosexuality is an immoral. So it's not just a mental health condition, but queerness is immoral. And that therefore that had implications for therapy and therapy undertaken by psychologists more generally and therapy taken undertaken by those with particular religious beliefs. And there's a long lag before that disappears. And I know for sure that we are nowhere near coming to the end of queerness being viewed as a mental health and or immoral thing that needs to be treated versus all the other things. So I think you you picked something that I, I feel like I'm living the progress and the lack of progress in that area because I see both. I see the progress and I see a huge lack of progress and that's even in the country I've come from Australia without looking at the country I'm living in Malaysia you you mentioned before how and when we were you know going back to the decolonizing aspect where even when you're talking about decolonizing research and it's in you know you're trying to be inclusive again it's an exclusionary process and it's actually very similar in in you know in queer studies where queerness, that term is more inclusive than LGBTQIA+, right? That, those, those acronyms, which are, again, used more in Western countries. And then the term queerness itself, and we learned this in Dr. Sharon Baum's class, where the term queer, again, is inherently exclusionary because it does not include the indigenous and more like, you know, non, non-Western notions of gender and sexuality and all that stuff. So, Again, you know, I'm sure you agree. It's it's a very, you know, it's a progress. And again, when I first started psychology, so 
you know, you're, you're picking something up, I'm pretty passionate. My research has always taken what we call an intergroup perspective so much of the time. And so the notion that we are, we have a personal identity and we have social identities um, that are who we are. And when I was early on researching in this area, there was very much a focus that we'd look as though a person had a social identity that we were studying. But of course, there's never a social identity that we each have. We have multiple social identities. And in, even in this given interaction at this moment, you know, what are the salient identities for you and I? And I think, oh, well, we share that we're women, um, but, you know, I'm here in my role as a professor and you're here in your role as a Moosa student rep and things. So the, we are inherently managing those different social identities. And even within the interaction, which one is salient changes. But as you said, even that ignores that there is always interactions for us. You know, you think I am always um, a woman here um, and then it's just how am I negotiating being a woman with these other identities? And it's been so much more recent that we've started to acknowledge that that's important, you know, and I think that's the debate going on in feminism at the moment, isn't it? Can I share one more bit and then I'll let you go because it's... Please, please go on. No, no, I, I'm, I'm loving this. Please go on. There was a moment for me. So my husband is, was, is an academic, semi-retired, um, but he writes books. And we were invited to go to the Jaipur Literature Festival, which is the largest um, writers' festival in the world in Jaipur in India. And wow, what an experience, of course. I just went along as the plus one and went to this talk that had Jermaine Greer, famous white feminist, and a range of other feminists of different ethnic backgrounds sitting as a panel there. And I think it was the moment that most came out for me. The time of the white feminist needs to pass. It still has work to do, of course, but it is so much more important at the moment, the other feminisms to come through because the white feminist me is in so much more a powerful place than the non-white feminists in so many things going on, um, including in psychology, you know. Um, going back to where we're talking today in psychology is it is time. It is time for queer women, women from different cultural backgrounds to come through and say, here's what needs to happen with feminism now. Dr. Jones, don't worry about going off track because I also wanted to like talk a bit about even within um, the field of gender studies, right, which is supposed to be inclusive again. And, you know, we, we are trying to make it more and more inclusive by studying non-Western, you know, narratives and perspectives. We, we still study feminism through a Western lens, though, right, like the different waves of feminism. And I, I, I think I had the privilege of growing up in Asia. So being around my people, so to speak, even though you know I'm Indian, but being growing up in Malaysia, but I was still in an American school. So I was in like a white bubble, so to speak, right? So my perspective of feminism was almost like it was out of sync with who I am as a person, if that makes sense. Like my 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 identity as a brown, you know, as an Indian woman. 
because women back home like the, the again like like you said feminism is like the the power dynamics and like the like where where feminism is in asia is so much different than where feminism is in in the west right the priorities are different like how we interact with culture and our you know feminism is different so no, I am again like this is this is really interesting to bring up. And then again, psychology has a direct impact on the real world. It's not just theoretical conceptual research. It has a direct impact on how we interact with people. So it's it's really important to start doing that. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Tune into the next episode for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Jones, where we ask the question, what is culture really? And discuss the importance of integrating different perspectives into culturally sensitive research. As always, I'm your host, Isha Bhainipati, and until next time, have a great day and stay safe out there.